Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, keeping you up to date with the biggest stories from across the TV landscape. It's been mega merger mayhem this week, as a landmark if left field announcement to combine US giants Discovery and Warner Media shook the industry on Monday, while e-commerce behemoth Amazon has reportedly begun acquisition talks with James Bond Studio MGM. Joining Jesse Whittaker and myself is Ampere Analysis Research Director Richard Broughton to get his thoughts on this monster deal and what it could mean for the wider content landscape. We've also got exclusive content from broadcasts and sister publication Screen's Restart Conference, a three-day event bringing together the TV and film industries to discuss their future after a year of unprecedented disruption caused by the pandemic. It's a pleasure for me and Jesse to have uh, Richard Broughton from Ampere Analysis on this week's News Wrap, the second time Richard's been on. Um, Richard, we've got you on to talk about a quite monumental and eye-catching, eye-opening. What were your initial thoughts on the merger? I think it's probably the best place to start because it came out of left field. Yes, well, thanks Thanks very much for having me on here. Um, first, first thoughts are very much around the pressure that mega businesses in the uh, in the entertainment market are are under so um, the fact that two mainstays in the entertainment sector are are now considering or have gone through with rather a, a consolidation process is just simply an indication of how rapidly things are shifting in the media market um, how consumer viewing habits have changed and are changing um, how the rise of new tech giants, so Amazon, Netflix, um, and others um, have been taking or, or, or eating into the lunches of some of the big media media companies, and how all of that's meant that even the, the, the huge um, studio and, and network businesses like Warner and Discovery are now thinking that they need to gain additional scale in order to continue to compete in this market. You've touched on it there, but why these two companies? I know that the, in the press conferences that they've given, they, they they talked about how well they know each other and John Stanky and David Zaslav did a whole, you know, backslapping friendly press conference. But from first instance, I don't think loads of people said that these two companies would go together. I think actually your colleague Guy told me that, you know, he was taken off guard that it was, Discovery going to pair with Warner? Why the why these two companies? I concur with with Guy on this. There isn't necessarily an obvious um, fit um, that they are two very different businesses in in many respects. Um, that Discovery has historically been a, a thematic brand pursuing reality and documentary content, whereas Warner, obviously, a big studio business with a huge amount of um, uh, scripted content, amongst other things. So they're, they're not necessarily aligned. And that may not be a bad thing um, in that uh, they're less likely to cannibalize one another if they're targeting complementary audiences. And particularly when we think about some of the avenues to growth in the streaming market and around how you might grow a subscription business in the future, um, it may well be that the, the two complementary or maybe slightly less overlapping audiences give them the, the opportunity to build greater scale. Brass tax, this, this, this merger has been kind of designed to you know pursue a d2c a direct-to-consumer strategy it's it's about stream it's all about streaming isn't it i mean you know we'll there are other things that we can discuss uh, within those businesses because they are legacy businesses and have other operations but it's it's mainly 
a kind of a D2C play, as we have seen, you know, how do you think the new company will combine its D2C platforms for consumers? Will, will a bundle option that David Zaslav mentioned, I mean, he mentioned lots of options, you know, what, what is it likely to be? Is it to be a bundle or a super service or, or, or could they be both at some point down the line? I, I think my advice for the for the businesses would be not not to attempt to go for some sort of super service, um, and that a bundled strategy is much more likely to to find success at least in the short term. So, um, what am I thinking here? So something like the strategy that let's say Disney has pursued with the the Hulu, ESPN, Disney Plus bundle, or in some markets with the Star upsell. Um, inherently consumers have an idea about the price that they're willing to pay for an individual subscription streaming service and once you start putting too much stuff in a, in an individual product either you're going to run up against that limit um, you're going to think consumers are going to look at this and think well do I really want to pay $20 for this service I can get another service over there that's $15 or $12 um, versus um, having it as separate businesses or separate branded streaming services whereby you, you start off with a, an HBO Max service at $14.99 and then for a mere 5 or $6 extra, you can add on the discovery content and you end up at the same number. Um, but, but ultimately, it's, more, it's in a more consumer-friendly and appealing way. So that would be my advice. Keep, keep, keep the, the, the strong, strong brands, the HBO brands and the discovery brands independent but use them as a way of upselling consumers from one product to another but within that this this bundled approach i think you and i started having a conversation on on twitter this this could be still quite you know quite a lot of options available for a consumer and we're all told that consumers want simplicity is you know what 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 kind of things do warner media and discovery have to decide on to try and to try and get a offer a service that is both compelling but easy for for an audience viewer because that's that's what you know ease often helps with minimizing churn right yeah so so there are there are two things that that would spring to mind around easing that journey for a consumer one is having a single place where you can manage your bill so ensuring that you don't have to have two separate accounts and two separate um, sets of billing details for, for your HBO services and your discovery services. So that's that's probably the easy one is, is converging the, the, the billing and the accounts. Um, probably the more complex one is settling on a technical platform um, that allows consumers to be upsold and perhaps even um, find content, uh, and search for content, discover and watch content. Um, from both of the brands in the same place. So imagine you're an HBO Max subscriber, you uh, are upsold to Discovery Plus, you don't need to have a separate app for that, you can find the content all within your, your Warner Discovery application. And that, that's important both from a, a navigation perspective and for, for keeping existing consumers happy, they don't have another app to manage, um, but also it offers other alternative options for, well, future bundling, um, but immediate upsell that if consumer searches for something, oh no, sorry, it's not inside your package, you're gonna have to buy access to this extra $7 a month uh, um, subscription. And it, and it facilitates the um, the upsell process from, um, from from Warner and Discovery's perspective. I'll, I'll step back uh, from the um, from the longer term implications of what what's going on here, and I'm sort of my my initial thoughts um, were around what will happen in the kind of direct uh, months uh, uh, following the the announcement of the agreement. Um, and I was giving it some thought and thinking, you know, who does this who does this benefit 
from a sort of business perspective and who does it um who does it seem like it's not necessarily so good for and I'll get on to Warner in a minute but I think from a discovery perspective it's uh you know it's a pretty brilliant deal in the sense that whilst AT&T will majority own the business I think that I've have 71% of the shareholding um David Zaslav who has been the discovery CEO for 15 odd years um, and sort of is the living embodiment of that brand these days um, is going to run the combined channel, right? So uh, it's that gives Discovery a lot of um, impetus to feel quite emboldened to sort of push and for for you know top level seats and um, and for, for trying to be on a level uh, playing field and a kind of an equal footing to Warner. Uh, and you, you might consider Warner to be a sort of more prestige brand because of the studio history and, and whatnot. Um, so I think from that perspective, it's a really good deal for, for Discovery. Um, from the Warner media side of things, like I'm, I'm not so sure about what, what this means, because whilst I think it's a good thing that Warner is being sort of extricated from AT&T because uh, Richard will know this and you'll know this. I've long sort of rallied against the idea that telecoms businesses can run uh, media businesses successfully I just think that is a disaster waiting to happen broadly and I think it's quite a smart move to to split those two things so that uh, Warner can operate independently um, but they've been through a number of mergers in in recent years and a number of restructures and it just feels like another one you know I think if you were a Warner media staffer right now you're going to feel ex exhausted you're going to feel like oh here we go again They've talked about $3 billion worth of synergies, which basically means lots of people are going to lose their jobs. Um, and I think it must be quite a, I would imagine, well, in fact, we, we know, having spoken to some people within Warner, the kind of the, the, the overriding atmosphere amongst the various you know, offices around the world and, and homes where people are working from is, is one of apprehension. Whereas I imagine from the discovery side of things, bar the uncertainty of, of, of job duplication and things like that, you're probably looking at this thinking, you know, awesome, we're part of Warner Media now. Yeah, and I, and I think that fits in nicely with, you know, the, what, 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 what Richard just said about kind of bringing the brands together. I think one of the things that I, I will put to you both, maybe starting with Richard, is how does one gain supremacy on the content front? Because, you know, they've, David Zaslav immediately said that they'll start with 20 billion to invest in content. That's how much WarnerMedia and Discovery are spending on their own separate services. Um, so that's what the number he started with. And you have to take that as read. If he says, we'll start with $20 billion, we have to say that this new company is going to invest 20 billion on, on content what is the marrying of of that investment uh in terms of whether it's discovery unscripted documentary reality factual entertainment like real life entertainment or high-end premium scripted from the hbo the hbo max side richard what are your thoughts on that obviously of the two businesses um warner as a or warner media as one of the, the major hollywood studios was always a bigger spender on content historically so i would expect the um that the high end the scripted component of the um content offer to remain the the largest portion of um of the investment going forwards mm. um Discovery is an interesting business, and I think to to the point that was raised earlier, it has always shrewdly made investments in content that 
in many other on, on, in many other spheres in many other markets might consider to be could to be fair for for free tv but discovery has quite successfully turned those brands into um into a reasonably high value business that can drive um consumers to actually shell out hard-earned cash for um to, to to watch um so undoubtedly they'll they'll sit side by side in driving different components of the of the business but i would certainly from my perspective i would expect to see um, Warner Media continuing to don- dominate, or the legacy Warner Media business continuing to dominate the um, the overall investments that, that that are being made. We've all seen a few of these, and you've reported on a number of these these mega mergers, and they're all designed to try and regain the ground of the likes of Disney Plus and Netflix. Can can they regain that some of that ground? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not even sure that that analysis is still. The exactly right these days because i think the way the market is maturing you're actually getting to a point now where it's it's more a case of can you carve out a piece of the market um i don't think unless something drastic happens netflix is going anywhere uh, i guess it could be an acquisitions target itself at some point in the future for for a very big company but you'd say they're pretty established uh you know disney plus looks like it's it's got its piece in the market and and will have its subscribers families and um and you know and and increasingly folks looking for premium content um so really for both hbo max discovery plus uh, and whatever else this new business decides to launch to the market it's about how much of the market can they grab now because I, i i think you will get to the point where uh you'll hit a kind of saturated market and there won't be space for new players after that and you know i would probably be uh more concerned if I was, uh, you know, someone like Peacock, whose international strategy still isn't quite as clear as, as what HBO Max is doing uh, and Discovery Plus has, has already done. Um, so I kind of feel like it, it's that more than, than um, kind of directly competing. I, I mean, it, it might be the case that they all start taking, you know, um, you know Netflix start churning and, and, and that those people start going directly to um, HBO Max. I don't think that will be the case. Um, and I think it really just comes down to the content. And I think that's kind of what uh, Richard was was touching on there. It's about can you find ways of getting people to uh, to impart with their their hard earned cash? And uh, like Richard's mentioned, Discovery are sort of masters at, at doing that with um, high end and, and often not so high end uh, factual content. They've really, you know, very rarely done scripted and it's quite impressive that they've managed to build up such a massive business without trying to do what is arguably the the most lucrative part of of the entertainment business but i suppose i suppose beyond all of that it's kind of we uh, at broadcast we have to sort of look at what all of this stuff means for production companies because ultimately the, the content needs to be made by someone and i think an interesting question uh, and this is probably going away from what you've asked slightly uh, is what happens to those uh, connected production companies to these two businesses? Now, we know Discovery is a 50% owner of all three media, which is the UK's biggest uh, production group. Uh, and Warner uh, owns several uh, pretty well-established indies, uh, you know, Ricochet, Rene- Renegade, 2020, Wall to Wall, really good premium brands. And I do wonder if they're particularly on the all three side, uh, which um, we know all three operates quite uh, independently to Discovery and Liberty, its other uh, main shareholder, although both of those companies are sort of pushed forwards by by the American investor, John Malone, who I think has quite an 
uh, important role to play in all of this. But if you take, say, the uh, Disney acquisition of Fox, for example, the way that Disney treated Endemol Shine Group, which is such an important business within our world, within the production world, um, and the sort of the relative lack of interest that Disney showed, basically due to Endemol Shine's size, um, you do wonder if there might be some sort of parallels here. So you're going to have this, you know, mega monolith business that's going to be doing 37 billion in revenue every year, and all three media's doing, you know, a very small fraction of that. Are they going to be interested in keeping that business, or is 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 it the sort of thing where you might see them looking to offload all three to someone who might be more actively interested in running a business like that? Um, I don't know, but I think that's a really interesting question about how this whole thing shapes out when it comes to uh, thinking about the sort of the the, the core broadcast uh, subscriber or reader, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think produ- production is obviously increasingly important in the market, particularly as um, traditional um sources of content become um off limits so as as particularly the studios but not not just them international broadcasters as well start to value their own content even more than they they have historically they'll stop selling it to third parties they make use of it via their own d2c platforms and that obviously then impacts the, the supply of content to to other businesses who who would want to generate their own subscription streaming services on the on the back of that um we've, we've obviously seen that from disney warner pulling back content that they'd previously licensed to pay tv businesses and other subscription services like netflix for instance um and then that obviously then places a premium on the remaining production companies and, uh, and studios in the market so some of those uh, production groups will 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 prefer to take the the almost the arms dealer route and you can you can look at uh, groups like sony which have, have decided well we're not going to play in the dtc streaming game too much we'll we'll just use our position in the market to license for high value um but obviously, as these mergers continue, those companies, those large production groups capable of producing these really high value titles um, become fewer and further between, um, which is obviously accelerating this whole M&A uh, trend that we seem to be seeing at the moment. Discovery was effectively was effectively the first company to run the Netflix model, right? So when they used to commission production companies years and years ago uh, and, and their, their model for many, many years, after they set up their international broadcasting business was to commission broadcasters and take all those rights. So if you were sitting in a, a MIPCOM uh, hall um, and, and there were a bunch of producers and distributors on stage, say 15 years ago, they'd be having the same conversations about people talking about whether you should sell your show to Netflix, because effectively you were selling all your rights and Discovery were taking everything and they were taking them virtually in perpetuity. So it's exactly the same as the Netflix model in some ways. It's just the difference being that was for, for broadcast rather than for streaming. The model here is about taking everything in-house We've, you know, you and I, John, have done a lot of work on how much money we think uh, Warner has forgone uh, by taking all this content back in-house. And we've had, you know, estimations in in the kind of, you know, um, toward in the billions, right? And they've given up all of this money um, in order to have a better service going forwards into the future. So, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty well stocked to give this, uh, give this a good shot. We have to touch on the, the linear businesses because both, both companies have significant linear presence still, um, particularly in the UK. 
And, you know, what, what, what do you think is going to be the effect on, on, on those businesses? So if you take it from a UK public service broadcaster's perspective, uh, yeah, this is another massive threat, isn't it? Um, and they've, the, these threats are popping up all over the place. And the money that these services are dealing in uh, is, is huge and is much bigger than any one British channel can, can afford to uh, compete with uh, if you're going to try and compete in the same spaces. So I guess the big question for the for the PSBs and you know all the the reviews that are ongoing at the moment are trying to establish sort of what the what the place for PSBs uh, are in the in the kind of the emerging media space. And I guess that you know you hear commissioners all say it all the time. The one thing we can do is super serve these audiences that we've created content for for you know 50 in some cases going on 100 years um we know these people better and we're able to provide for them better than than a, a hbo or a discovery plus and that's probably true right um like you know the bbc still is doing you know gigantic ratings for for line of duty and even a show like you know unforgotten on itv has really picked up and you know over several seasons really built its audience um and so the, the psbs are still doing it you know channel five's having this this absolutely purple patch where it just uh, is just knocking it out of the park every every night and people are watching more telly whether that's due to the pandemic or whether that's you know due to some sort of other sort of trend um so i guess it's just it, it, it's a case of sort of just finding out where your place is isn't it in the market because we know what uh broadly we are, we know what Dis, uh, disney plus wants we know what netflix wants we know what uh you know whatever the uh resultant hbo max discovery plus uh business want we know we know what they're going for and we know how they're doing it they want international subscribers and they want lots of them um so it, it's about deciding i guess for for the you know, in, in the players in the UK and, and around the world, the, the, the sort of channel businesses around the world. Um, what, what's your response to that? And some people will make the right choices and others, others won't. Elsewhere in, in, in the TV landscape, uh, it's the broadcast screen restart conference this week. And on Tuesday, we welcomed ITV and Channel 4 drama bosses Polly Hill and Caroline Hollick. They spoke to Commissioner Index researcher Heather Fallon about ambition, lower tariffs and diversity and Heather kicked off by asking them about authenticity of talent. We don't often get pitched shows with talent attached. Um, it can it can work in your favour if you've got a massive name attached for us without doubt but in the end it will be the idea you know if if so it's not necessary. You need a good idea or a good script or a good pitch for us to develop a script. And if you've got a great script, I'm always confident that you'll get a great team of actors to come and a great director. So that's not my first worry, really. Um, and in terms of the balance, I think, I think, you know, we absolutely do. And particularly in writers, I think there's a real push for us to have you know, new writers and new voices. And we are doing that by commissioning those shows. Um, in terms of on screen, um, it's a balance within within a, uh, within the cast, really, you know, and, it, and depending on the ages of your cast in terms of whether you're breaking through new talent or you're offering an audience a much loved actor. So um, I think it is always a mix and always a balance and dependent on the idea. 
So similarly, when we always start with the idea in the script, um, it's also really tricky when people attach talent early on because they end up not they end up breaking your heart because they're not available. So it, we need to get the script right and get the story right. Um, but you know, big talent does play a huge role in ensuring that your show can put its head above the parapet in a in a really crowded market. Um, you know, Deadwater Fell that we had um, on screen last year. Um, had David Tennant starring in it and and Kush Jumbo and obviously they're really recognisable faces and it really helped that show kind of punch through and um, and really land with audiences but at the same time our remit is to to nurture new talent. Um, uh, another show that we've got um, filming this year um, is called The Undeclared War um, which is by Peter Kosminski which he's directing as well and the star of that show is a newcomer called Hannah Kalik Brown but um, the other cast, the her supporting cast include Simon Pegg, Mark Rylance, Adrian Lester, um, and that's a really, really brilliant way of seriously breaking some new talent in a show that people will come to because they know that Peter's a great talent, that there are recognisable faces in it, but we, it, we've got the space to, to showcase a, a, a complete newcomer um, uh, and launch her into the world in a way that's really exciting. She's a phenomenal talent. Yeah, that's really exciting. So another question that I had for you guys, which is how are you dealing with large scale kind of set pieces at the moment? So it feels as though drama needs to be on an ever more ambitious scale and yet budgets are quite squeezed. So I wanted to know how you guys have been dealing with those challenges. There's lots of elements to that question because Ambition is absolutely at the heart of what we do. It doesn't always mean massive, huge production values or big set pieces. You know, I think one of the most ambitious pieces we did last year was Dares. That you know, in a in a as a channel that does a lot of those true crimes, that show started at the end of what we would normally pass the end when when um, he says yes, it's me. And actually, there was two interviews that took place: one with the police, obviously, and one with the biographer and therefore quite theatrical in its nature and brilliantly done. But the fact that it punched through in such a huge way with a big audience, not just got great reviews, but it properly connected, I thought was brilliant because it wasn't the most obvious way. It wasn't starting with the beginning of that murder and, and investigating it through to its conclusion. So I don't think ambition always has to be, as I said, the biggest budgets. Um, in terms of how um, production is managing. I mean, post COVID, I mean, when we went into the first lockdown, I didn't know how we were going to get it going again. And it was incredible that by August we were back shooting and, you know, we are, we have not had to stop since. So, you know, that's a testament to all the incredible crews, producers that are, that are back, you know, putting everything, getting everything back together. I'm not allowed on set because that's the sort of nature of where we are at the moment. So, um, and in terms of budgets, you know, we, it's all about the story. And sometimes, as I said, the most interesting pieces can be the most domestic and intimate pieces. Um, and in terms of how you fund those, it's always been the case that, you know, we buy the UK and the rest of the world is up for grabs. So depending on how big a budget uh, the show is, depends on what sort of co-producing partners you bring in and, what's, and what that does. But, but it's, again it's we find the right partners for the right shows and we have the right money to make them but not everything it's not one fit all for drama some shows um don't need big co-producing partners and some do 
Yes, similarly, we take every single project on its own merits. I mean, every story is so different. Um, they've all got different needs and different um, different setups, really. So it's really hard to have a one fits all strategy. Um, we're really open to co-production. Um, it's the same as a co-production with HBO Max, and actually. You know, it's the same as a period piece, which is always expensive. It took place in in London. There were scenes in New York. Actually, the entire show was shot in Manchester um, because the production was so brilliantly clever um, and with their sort of judicious use of, of of CGI. Which, as somebody who lives in the north themselves, I'm particularly pleased that we've proven that we don't even need London or New York as a location to make those shows on that sort of scale work. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, where necessary, we um, we partner. Undeclared War is a partnership with um, with Peacock, um, uh, which is uh, an American streaming um, service, uh, and that's allowing us to make that show on quite a big scale. But even under COVID, the, these kind of the COVID restrictions that we're under, we've got really really rigorous protocols that allow us to keep a sense of ambition in our filming, but also keep everybody safe. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts. It's probably Polly and I both looking a bit twitchy by this point in the pandemic because just keeping the show on the road is is a complex thing. But you've got to have ambitious storytelling because that's what audiences want, and um, and you just have to find really creative, interesting ways to deliver that ambition. And all, all of our shows, apart from a couple, have um, all the ones you've seen, all the ones coming up, have all been shot since August. So under. Um, the COVID restrictions and you, although it's much harder to shoot and takes longer, um, you, the audience don't know, you know, you wouldn't tell, you can't tell when you watch the show. So it's been incredible what's been achieved. Yeah, absolutely. It's a testament to the incredible work of production companies yeah. around the UK, isn't it? Um, speaking of co-productions and SVODs while we're on the subject, how are you kind of interacting with international producers, international broadcasters and co-productions. Um, is that an ever increasing thing that you guys are looking into as a way of ensuring that projects can be ambitious? I'll go to you, Polly. It's always been, the, it's been the case for years that we've had good partners with, um, with Americans mainly, or the SVODs. Um, and it's not really, it's not the start of a conversation that we have. So what normally happens is we'll develop an idea for ITV with the producers. And then once it's green lit, um, they'll go off and find out how to fund the rest of it. Because we, as I said, we don't pay for all of it. We pay for the UK territory. So it depending on how much more needs to be raised, it's dependent on what sort of co-producing relationship you're going into. That's largely driven by the producer. Um, sometimes I will have a conversation with whoever that partner is, but largely it's to do with the producer in terms of going out and and having that conversation with all the people who are interested and in seeing who the best partner is. You know, it's always about finding the person who wants to make the same show as us. Um, and then it's so far been only a good positive thing that, that there's been such a huge appetite for drama and British drama for the right shows. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we've we've worked with most people, and I haven't had a bad experience. No complaints. No, it makes it, it gets, you know it means that we're able to make 
the dramas that we want to be making. I mean, not everything on ITV needs huge, huge, huge budgets. Drama is expensive. So without doubt, whatever happens, drama is expensive. But we're, we're not trying to make um, hugely epic because we make so much of our shows are real and a lot of it contemporary. There is some periods of, but largely it's it's quite contained. The sort of, so it's all about the story and it's all about the characters and it's all about rather than how big the budget is. But if we need a big budget, then it's because the show, you know, the show needs it. And if the show, because there's such a huge appetite internationally for drama, then, you know, you'll find the right partner. Yeah, I would second that. Absolutely. I think um, what's really great about working with international partners now is that you don't have to put an American character in there to make it work for an American audience. Um, I think particularly the, the streamers have a their audiences really love British drama. They've had the chance to see quite a lot of it. And um, the other thing that's quite exciting about um, co-production um, is that you can you can feel a sort of wave of excitement about a show. We had this with with the excitement building about It's a Sin um, after it launched here in the UK. Um, it, that the kind of critical success of it in the UK really resonated in the States in the build up to its premiere on HBO Max. Um, it also played out Canal Plus and um, and in Australia in France and and out in Australia on Stan and um, the the kind of global nature of social media and um, the way things travel really well um, just allowed the show I think to feel like it had um, even more cultural reach and weight than it did when it just went out in the UK. So I think I think yes, finding the right partner who wants to make the same show as you is the most important thing. What we would never ever want to do is put producers in a position where they were torn in different directions and trying to serve serve different masters but um really great partners and collaborative collaboration is really fun and in in an ideal world you've all you're all pulling in the right direction you've all got the same notes and i think there are a lot of really great partners out there so yeah we really enjoy co-production when it feels right for the show hmm. and for those smaller drama production companies who may not have international connections or co-production partners that they work with regularly uh, it could probably be quite daunting seeing you know these huge beautifully made programs and um, is there room for smaller drama productions to get ideas off the ground typically at a lower price point I don't think it has to be at a lower price point I, I think you have to find the right story so if somebody pitches me a story and I think it feels right for ITV I'll develop that story and make it with them it that you know it, I really am looking for good stories and I'm looking for new takes often as I said on familiar genres so a new voice new producers uh, you know my door is open and I am constantly talking to people um, if it's the right show then we will help support getting that made and getting that off the ground but again a good script will will catch fire you know um as karen said it's just it's uh, you know it's, it's exciting once it goes around you'll sort of feel that there's interest around so you know if you've got a good script it, it, it all comes from there really we're actually really interested in looking at ways of delivering drama at a bit less than the the full channel four tariff um really as a way of just getting more hours of tv off the ground. Obviously, we'll always pour um, all of our resources into big shows like It's Sin um, or Dead Water Fell or, you know, My Name is Lizzie. Um, but if we can find ways of, again, 
usually creatively collaborating with either with other co-producers um, or finding other ways of delivering shows at a slightly lower tariff. We make a series called I Am that's directed by Dominic Savage. Um, the second series is coming back this year, which is an anthology series um, developed in Dominic's very distinctive improvisational style. I wish I could say improvisational, it's quite similar. Um, <laughs> improvisatory style. Um, and this year we're, um, we've got some amazing talent as part of that series, Saran Jones, Letitia Wright, Leslie Manville. Um, but the nature of the way this, the, 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 sh the films are shot, um, it's, you know, very, it's, it's, a, it's built around one lead character. So limited cast, limited locations. Um, it's a really, really great way of delivering incredibly high impact, really emotional drama at a, at a cost that just allows us to have more hours in the mix across the board. Um, so we're, we're interested in looking at different ways of, um, uh, of, of funding dramas like that. We never, we always want all the money on screen. It's never about cutting costs and trying to, you know, trying to do things on the cheap, but there are interesting co-productions out there, um, um, co, uh, acquisitions, um, early acquisitions, that sort of thing, where we're able to do things um, uh, yeah, at, a, at a slightly different tariff. So very open to having those conversations, whether you're a really experienced production company or whether you're a newer production company who's just got a really creative way of um, approaching that. Before we go, we could not leave without asking asking you Richard and you Jesse what you've been watching this week well I've been part of the the, the growing internationalization trend for the uh, the TV landscape so I've been watching a few German series lately so I've been watching dark on Netflix and we just finished uh, watching Deutschland 89 uh, on uh, all four which was excellent so I'd heartily recommend it excellent excellent international dramas we like to hear that and and Jesse um, so I've been watching two things and one of them I'm not sure if we've had on the uh, what we've been watching the last few months the last few weeks is uh, the BBC three-part documentary Gods of Snooker which is just uh, I mean superb television cannot praise it enough um, it, it makes you long for an era when sport was just a bit more ridiculous and um, you know as much as I, I don't uh, profess that people should should pick up smoking or, or heavily drinking before uh, taking on uh, playing some sport um, watching those that those group of snooker players from the sort of 70s through to 90s and the way that they approach the sport is it's sort of a, a joyous thing in a kind of um, incredible way because the world is so different now. So uh, there's characters like um, Alex Hurricane, uh, Alex Higgins. Um, there's a there's a very sort of poignant but quite sad uh, um, narrative around Jimmy White, um, and there's some very funny stuff about how um, Barry Hearn. Uh, had folk like uh, Willie Thorne singing songs with Chaz and Dave. So it's, it's just a, a really great uh, look at a period in sport that will probably never happen again with the internationalization of sport and the kind of the money that's that's in it, even and the, you know, the money that's in snooker even these days. So it's, yeah, it's well worth a watch. I would, I would absolutely heartily recommend it. Brilliant. Well, guys you've been fantastic and some fantastic uh, options and 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 you know suggestions for our listeners for um what we've been watching it's been a pleasure having you both on to talk about the mega mergers that have happened and yeah thanks very much for 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 stepping on my pleasure john pleasure thanks very much thank you for listening to the broadcast news wrap with me john elms 
Jesse Wittick and our special guest this week, Richard Broughton. Today's podcast was edited by Max Goldbart. Please do check out this week's podcast, plus all previous episodes of Newswrap on Spotify and iTunes or via our website, www.broadcastnow.co.uk.